Malachi chapter 3, and I'll be reading from the complete Jewish Bible. Look, I am sending my messenger to clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant in whom you take delight. Look, here he comes, says Adonai Zavaot. But who can endure the day when he comes? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire, like the soap maker's lye. He will sit testing and purifying the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold and silver. So they can bring offerings to Adonai uprightly. Then the offerings of Yehuda and Yerushalayim will be pleasing to Adonai as it was in the days of old, as in years gone by. Then I will approach you for judgment, and I will be quick to witness against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who take advantage of wage earners, widows, and orphans, against those who rob the foreigner of his rights, and don't fear me, says Adonai Zavot. But because I, Adonai, do not change. You sons of Yaakov will not be destroyed. Since the days of your forefathers, you have turned from my laws and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Adonai Zavot. But you ask, in respect to what are we supposed to return? Can a person rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how have we robbed you? In tents and voluntary contributions. A curse is on you, on your whole nation, because you rob me. Bring the whole tenth into the storehouse, so there may be food in my house. And put me to the test, says Adonai Zavot. See if I won't open for you the floodgates of heaven and pour out for you a blessing far beyond your needs. For your sakes, I will forbid the devourer to destroy the yield of your soil, and your vine will not lose its fruit before harvest time, says Adonai Zavot. All nations will call you happy, for you will be a land of delight, says Adonai Zavaot. You have spoken strongly against me, says Adonai. Yet you say, how have we spoken against you? By saying, there is no point in serving God. What good is it to obey his orders or to walk about as mourners before Adonai Zavaot? We consider the arrogant happy and the evildoers prosper. They put God to the test. Nevertheless, they escape. Then those who fear Adonai spoke together, and Adonai listened and heard. A record book was written in his presence for those who fear Adonai and had respect for his name. They will be mine, says Adonai Zavaot, on the day when I compose my own special treasure. I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. 
then once again you will see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the person who serves God and one that doesn't serve him. Thank you, Paula. I want to take a moment and introduce uh, Dr. Michael Brown, who for many of us is no stranger. He's been here at Yeshua Atzion before. Um, one of our top scholars and a man of God who has a heart of compassion for the lost. Um, what a wonderful combination. And uh, I'm privileged to count Michael as, uh, as a friend of mine and um, particularly remember 24 years ago where I sat under his teaching and it completely revolutionized my understanding of rabbinic Judaism. And I have since then incorporated much of what I had learned back then into what I have been teaching. So in any event, um, would you please come? Well, it's a joy to be with all of you here this morning. Thanks for the introduction and prayer. Although that's scary to think that it's actually going on 25 years ago that we had that class, Atlanta in 1987. Wow. Yeah, it's becoming a, a more common occurrence to speak of old friends. <laughs> uh, I was introduced at a meeting where I was speaking of leaders meeting actually in Hawaii to about 150 pastors and it was with the national radio network that I, I'm on and I was pleased to be introduced as the new blood and the new generation. <laughs> they were talking about all of these different radio hosts and church leaders and things and that were men in their 70s or approaching their 80s. So at 56, I was the new guy. I got up and said, it's, it's not every day as a grandfather of four to be introduced as the new generation. A lot of young people talk about the Joshua generation, and they want to be part of the Joshua generation. That's my goal one day too, but I'm not old enough yet, because Joshua had to be at least 60, at the very least, when he led the children of Israel. And so we're, we're young men just getting started. Amen. And... Uh, God willing, tonight when I, when I uh, fly home, stop over and surprise our oldest grandchild who will be 11 today. So anyway, it is a joy to be with you, and, and I dearly appreciate my brother Chaim and his steadfastness in the Lord these many years. Uh, I'm going to be opening up the scriptures in a moment. One thing that you get in the Messianic Jewish congregation is a lot of scripture, Sometimes while preaching, I'll be quoting verses and reading passages, and then I'll sarcastically apologize for using so much of the Bible while preaching the Word. Uh, so we've heard a lot, a lot more Scripture read and talked about already than in uh, many services that will be in, so I appreciate your love for the Word. Uh, if you don't know my website, it is askdrbrown.org, so please jot that down and visit there. And When you get online, just sign up to be on our email list. Uh, we send out one or two emails a week letting you know about special radio programming. In fact, if all goes well this Thursday, I'll be debating an Orthodox rabbi on the air. Shmuley? No, no, a another, another rabbi. But we should have Shmuley on soon so he and I can debate his Kosher Jesus book, uh, which uh, I, I wrote 
he goes after me throughout the book, which is a compliment, and even has a special acknowledgement uh, blasting me in the end, but in a friendly way. It, it's a very friendly way. It's actually quite funny. And uh, he asked me for an endorsement, so I endorsed it by saying, uh, while finding something to disagree with on virtually every page of the book, uh, especially his radical reconstruction of the New Testament and his rejection of, the, uh, uh, of Yeshua's messiahship, that I'm thrilled to see an Orthodox rabbi embracing Yeshua as, as one of our own. And as a rabbi I said, in fact, you might call the book America's most famous rabbi meets the most famous rabbi of all time. So that's, that's right in the front of the book. But Shmuley, Shmuley will be on, God willing. Maybe we'll have a series of radio debates. But uh, we'll send out uh, new articles that I'm writing and other messages that we have. So askdrbrown.org. Uh, when you go there, explore the site. Real Messiah is our Jewish outreach website. Uh, you can watch debates I've had with rabbis, read relevant articles there, listen to testimonies. Uh, Think It Through is a, a Jewish outreach TV show we did for a couple of years. You can watch many of the episodes online as well. And then uh, our daily radio show, The Line of Fire, they're all linked there, uh, askdrbrown.org. And we are on the air uh, two hours live across the nation in different cities, get different parts of the show. So you here, in case you don't know it, uh, get the second hour every day, which is uh, 1 to 2 your time. So 1 to 2 Mountain Time on KRKS, their AM station, 990 AM, from 1 to 2. Uh, we hit on different topics every day. One day we may be opening up a scripture. In, in fact, I got into a debate with some Catholics on Friday on the air, and I said, fine, Tuesday we'll debate whether Mary is the mother of God. So this will be my first Catholic debate on the air. For those of you who are hold firmly to the Mary, mother of God position, feel free to call in. Uh, <laughs> Those who differ, feel free to call in. Uh, anyway, uh, Wednesdays, we'll talk about moral, social issues. Thursday is our Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. Friday, uh, folks can call in with any questions they have. So anyway, 1 to 2, 9.90 a.m. You can listen to me Monday through Friday. And if you want to catch the first hour or listen by podcast, you can just go to the website. And on the way out, uh, you'll see some books we have. Uh, this one, 60 Questions Christians Ask About Jewish Beliefs and Practices. You'll find super practical Lots of common questions you have about Jewish history, about why Jewish people do what they do, uh, questions about the Middle East, questions about the Jewish background to the New Testament, questions about believers and the Torah today. Uh, those questions are answered. We've got uh, four of my five items on answering Jewish objections to Jesus at the table and some other relevant books, so you can get them. I'll be able to greet folks for a few minutes before I leave for the airport. All right. We've opened our hearts to God in prayer, and we trust Him for His Spirit and His anointing. Uh, God saved me 40 years ago, 1971, so I just celebrated my 40th anniversary. I was a heroin shooting, LSD using, rebellious, 16-year-old, rock drumming Jewish kid, and God had mercy on me, saved me, transformed my life, and it's amazing to think of a 40-year journey, but here we are, and the best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. Uh, Chaim had shared with me that he was in the midst of a series on giving, and would I speak along these lines as well? And, and to me, when we talk about giving, we're talking about fundamental faith principles. And I thought, sure, I could absolutely do this. Plus, at the end of the service, we're receiving an offering for our ministry, so you bet I can preach on giving. Uh, <laughs> But, but I, I want to challenge your faith today 
And, and I want to encourage your faith today. As we were coming to the end of the worship service and I was thinking about the message, a phrase struck me, which is that faith has no safety belt. Faith has no safety belt. That, that God wants to get us out of our comfort zone and out of our security of what we can do and produce to a place where we trust him. And on the one hand, it's like Peter getting out of the boat as, as Yeshua says, fine, come and walk on the water with me. It, it gets us out of our place of security where we're in a place where we have to trust God. But when we learn to live like that, we find it to be the ultimate place of security. We're going to open up some scriptures. I want to share a few instances from my own life. But let me tell you how the safety belt thing or seat belt came to mind. Years ago, when our, our kids were little, we were on a family vacation together. And we had a few days going to amusement parks and things like that. So Nancy wasn't too keen on going on the roller coasters or those kinds of things. My wife, Nancy, 35 years. But... Uh, our daughters really wanted to go on them, and, you know, Dad, I'm going to go on with them. And, and I'm big, so I'm kind of squeezed in a lot of these rides, but, but we were having a blast. And, but the good thing is any, any, of these, any of these roller coasters you go on and these dangerous, crazy rides, you get strapped in. And me being big, I mean, I'm, I'm really strapped in. There's not much room to move there. Well, the end of the vacation, everyone wanted to go horseback riding. Now, I've, I've never been a horseback rider. It's not part of my life or heritage. But Nancy rode a lot when, when she was a teenager and younger, and both of our daughters rode a lot. One of them still does. So we made arrangements to go on this trail ride. I remember they had to really look to find a, a horse big enough for me. <laughs> April was her name, if I remember. <laughs> and, and we get on these horses, and the first thing I'm looking for is the seatbelt. <laughs> You know, because we've been on these roller coaster rides and these other things, and I'm, I'm really ready to get strapped in and tighten, and we got to get on the horse, and that was the first thing. There's no seatbelt. And then suddenly, as I thought, my daughters do these jumps, and th- I couldn't believe how courageous and bold they were. And of course, I, I was somehow in the front of the group behind the, the lead rider, and the rest of my family was just trying to calculate was I going to fall off to the left or was I going to fall off to the right? The only joy in the experience was knowing that my family was having fun at my expense. There, there's no seat belt or safety belt with, with faith where, where we can just kind of stay in our own comfort zone and see God move. Somehow he takes us out of our own place of security and brings us to a place where he is our refuge, he's our rock, he's our strength. And then from there, we find real security. I'm not talking about things that we initiate, like someone foolishly thinking if they'll just go off medication that they will be healed or if they will just take all the money in their bank account and just give it away that that they will automatically receive miraculous provision. I'm not talking about the, the, the machinations of our own mind I'm talking about when we're prompted by God and called by God. And it's a consistent pattern through the scriptures. When when Moses splits the sea in Exodus, the 14th chapter, God tells him to stretch out his rod. And actually, it's imperative in the Hebrew, divide the sea. You do it. Stretch out the rod. You take this act of faith, this step of faith. 
Luke, the fifth chapter, is a very familiar portion of Scripture. The disciples, some of whom are are fishermen, the Talmudim, have been fishing all night. They know where to go, and they know what time to fish. This is their livelihood. They've been fishing all night, catch nothing. Yeshua gets in the boat with them, tells them, go out in the deep water. Hang on. It's the wrong time, and it's the wrong place. But Peter also knows this as Yeshua is speaking. He says, whatever you say, at your work, we've been fishing all night and haven't caught anything. Now it's daytime, and you want us to go fishing where we're not going to be able to catch fish? At your word, we'll do it. So, so they step out of their comfort zone. They step out of what is natural for them, and they go out into the deep water. And you know the story. Suddenly, as they, they put the nets down, there's so many fish that they begin to pull the nets in, and there are too many fish. They have to call another boat besides, and then that boat gets filled with fish to the point the boats begin to sink. See, we can do all that we do and work as hard as we can work and and serve as faithfully as we can, which is all important. But if we don't step into the realm of faith, we don't see God's results. We we don't see that supernatural grace and power working. Look, I I was a drug-addicted kid, not addicted to one particular drug, but drug-addicted and really addicted to the needle. And and it's it's such a foreign thing now. I mean, this is 40-plus years ago. But in the midst of it, and those that struggle with addictions, these things are like mountains. And the idea of not doing these things, the idea of turning away from them, it seemed impossible. And and in in my young days then, I hadn't been in trouble. I wasn't arrested. I wasn't on the streets. So for me, this was just a, a fun thing I was doing and doing what the rock stars did. And when, when, when the Lord worked in my life powerfully and wonderfully and convicted me of my sin and demonstrated his love for me, and the reality of that moment, December 17th of 71, after a process of, of a spiritual battle had been going on for, for, for several months, when I knew that I knew his love was real, and, and, and I, in that context, I saw the darkness of my sin, December 17th of 71, I said, that's it. I'll never put a needle in my arm again. And I was free from that moment on. It wasn't just going through some best effort and trying harder. It was realizing I'm bound, I'm a slave, but the power of God can change us. I'm talking about a realm of faith where we take hold of God's power and God's possibilities and and God's grace and God's word, not to fulfill our carnal desires, but to see his kingdom advanced, to see God move forward through his people. I've been to India now 18 times, 18 out of the last 19 years. Dear, dear folks we work with, the leader of the ministry was a former untouchable. He was a communist radical, atheist, alcoholic when the Lord appeared to him and saved him. And he has an extraordinary ministry there, many different parts of India. The the folks that have graduated from his ministry school have gone out and planted a thousand plus congregations in unreached tribal areas. I mean tribal. I mean monkeys in the trees and, and tigers in the jungles. He's been stoned for his faith. Some of the men they've sent out have been beaten and killed. He has a hospital and another hospital they're working on. And orphanages and children's homes, schools. It goes on and on. The man barely has an elementary school education. And, and, and they provide 
something like 5,000 meals a day, and they have no guaranteed monthly support to supply it. In other words, they have learned how to trust God in a certain way in obeying what he said. This is India. They don't have a lot of rich money coming over their way from the United States. But they have learned that when they can get into this realm of trusting God, that all things are possible. That brings you outside of yourself and outside of your limitations and into a place where it has to be God. Haim and I were just chatting during the visitor greeting time about this very reality. Think of this for a moment. We understand theologically why Yeshua is born of the Virgin Miriam. We understand theologically that he has no earthly father, that the fallen nature of, of, of man is not passed on to him, that Adam's sin is not imputed to him. We can, we can understand why he's virgin born. But why does the forerunner, John the Immerser, why is he born of a woman who's too old to have children? Why did God do it like that? When you read in Luke, the first chapter, and, and, and Gabriel, the angel, God's messenger comes to Miriam and tells her the story. When she says, how is this going to be? Not an unbelief, but I, I'm going to give birth to the Son of God. How is this going to be? I'm a virgin. I'm going to give birth to the Messiah of Israel. How is this going to be? When, when, when the Lord speaks to her through his messenger, he tells her, yes, you, you are going to give birth and not only so, but your older cousin Elizabeth, who's too old to have children, she's giving birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. And then we get to Luke one thirty-seven: for nothing will be impossible with God. In other words, God is doing this in such a way right from the start to say it's the good news that's impossible to man, but possible with God. I, I, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever I feel as sure of this as the fact that I'm standing here in front of you, that Romans 11.26 will ultimately be fulfilled and that there will be a national turning of the Jewish people to Yeshua and that all Israel will be saved. I, I don't question that for a split second. It is not based on experience. <laughs> oh, thank God for Jewish people who have come to faith. Someone was asking me in, in our class at the seminary this week, how many ultra-Orthodox Jews or rabbis I've seen come to the Lord? I mean, this is few and far between in terms of our own experience. We're always hearing reports of, of Jewish people coming to faith. Everywhere I go, I'm meeting Jewish people who have come to faith. I'm hearing from people that, that through our books and materials have come to faith or have come back to faith. But come on, it's, it's a drop in the bucket. And, and in many ways, the, the really, really religious are getting more and more fervent. And of course, they are growing in numbers. We had a, a rabbi, a friend of mine, that, a theological opponent, but a dear friend, an ultra-Orthodox rabbi with whom I regularly dialogue, join in on the class by speakerphone Wednesday night to speak to our students and to give his perspective. And he's, what, 44 years old. He's got 12 kids. And I asked him how common that is in his community. He said, very common. And if you look in Israel, you've got the ultra-Orthodox growing in numbers more and more and more and more. And the secular Israelis with a low birth rate under two per couple. So you know that just over a period of time that you're going to have a more and more dominant ultra-Orthodox population who in the natural are the most resistant to the good news about Yeshua. 
And the more I see that happen, the more my heart gets encouraged. And I thought, and I think to myself, those are the very people who are going to turn. Based on what? The God of the impossible. I was talking to someone about some things a few days ago. Areas we're involved with here in the United States, areas of ministry we're involved in some social and moral issues. And someone said, but looking at things, it seems completely impossible. I said, yeah, that's what encourages me. I'm not talking ignorantly here. I'm saying that the God we serve wants us to know that it's not by our strength or power or might or wisdom that we'll see his kingdom advanced. He will work through us, and we work hard, and we labor and serve, but it all must be a matter of faith to take hold of who he is and what he's promised. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, speaking about the great examples of faith that tie in with some of the the Torah portion that was read last week and this week and coming weeks. Why is it that, that Joseph says, hey, when you come out of Egypt, bring my bones with you? Faith is speaking. Why is it? Hebrews says that, that Moses chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? It says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. As we, as we have literally in India washed the feet of martyrs, widows, women whose husbands we have laid hands on and sent out to preach who were then killed for their faith and then heard them testify or heard a daughter testify whose, whose father was beheaded, his head chopped off with an axe just a few months earlier, and the 17-year-old daughter gets up to testify and says, I'm not looking for your sympathy or your finances. All my life, I've been wanting to live with a purpose. Now that my father was killed in God's work, I feel I have a purpose. She said, I want to go on with my education and get into medical work so I can help the people here in my village and stay here. It was the people who killed my father. I want to stay here and help my people. That's faith speaking. That's that's faith saying you can kill the body, but you can't destroy who I really am. This is foundational everything we do. Sometimes, though, when when it comes to practical areas of our lives, when it comes to finances, when it comes to giving, we get very natural about it. In other words, we think in terms of faith, we think in terms of the impossible, we think in terms of the kingdom of God in other areas. As we share our faith with people, as we pray for God's purposes in Israel and around the world, we're always thinking spiritually, we're always thinking by faith, but then when it comes to natural things and things that we can physically do and giving, we're thinking in terms of budgets, which are good, we're thinking in terms of what I can afford, which is wise, But we often get out of the realm of faith when it comes to giving, whereas this can be the very thing as we live by faith with our giving and as we live by faith with our finances that really moves us to live by faith in every area of life. When I was in grad school, so married with two daughters and under some financial pressure, working a secular job as a salesman, I was talking to my pastor, and he said to me, Mike, because you're a salesman, it's easy for you to think of God providing through your job instead of really trusting God. And I thought, what's he talking about? 
of course I expect God to provide through my job. I'm a salesman. I'm a commission salesman. So if I do better in sales, I can make more money and pay these bills and provide for the family. And then I realized what he was saying. If I just had a job with a fixed income, right? I'm working hard. I'm faithful on my job, but we're coming up short. The only alternative I would have is to be trusting God as opposed to be trusting my job. And I realized I have to look at this differently. Malachi, the third chapter, we heard read before I got up to speak. And there are some congregations that teach tithing as, as a principle, some that teach it as a law, some that simply encourage it. In a messianic congregation, it would be something more readily embraced. But as a believer, I was always taught this as a principle. I never worried about is this law or grace. It just seemed to be a good principle to honor God first, to give of the first fruits, to say what comes to me first. If it was allowance, if I just had $15 in a week to, to give three or four of that and to just do it as life habit and then to always be thinking every time you get a check that the first Fruits belong to the Lord. So there's a constant faith attitude in giving. Well, we were living on Long Island. Our children were very young, two, three years old, about a year and a half apart. We lived upstairs in a two-family house from the landlord of the house, who was a very nasty man, ultimately alienated his whole family from him. He was nasty. He was hard to get along with. He was demanding. And, and you would not be a day late with rent with him. You wouldn't even think of the possibility of what would happen if you were a day late. We lived upstairs, and he was going to get his money. No grace period, nothing. And at that time... I was also a commission salesman, but it was a few years ago, and I was making my living selling baby pictures. When we had our first daughter, salesmen had come to our house, they were giving out free pictures, they would take pictures of your kid, and, and you'd get one free, and and then they come back a couple weeks later and say, okay, here are all the pictures, you know, the professionally taken, here are all the pictures. It was the days before digital cameras and digital pictures. And you'd pick one out, and well, what are you going to do with the rest? Well, we throw them away. You just throw my children's picture away. So, you know, people would buy, you'd get them enlarged, and for the grandparents and the family and all this. So I actually made a living doing this. I remember, yeah, we wanted the pictures when our first one was born. So I was looking for a job, got this job. I was making a living selling baby pictures. And I was in grad school going to NYU that time towards my master's in Near Eastern languages. And, and money was tight. And I remember looking at our checkbook. In those days, I would take care of all the bills. And I said, okay, this much we have. If I honor the Lord with a tithe, which was always my habit, first thing that would come out would be at least 10% of the check. Then when it comes time to pay the rent, and then I have to pay for, for electricity, I'm going to be short. And, and listen, when you're a young dad with a young family, 
and there's money pressure. Being short 50 or $100 can feel like 5000 or 100000 And in fact, if, if, if you're at a toll booth and you need a dollar and you have 80 cents, that, that 20 cents is still not going to get you through. You know what I'm saying? That, that lack can still feel immense. And I remember thinking, well, if I write this check, that when I get my next check from sales, I knew on average what I made, I'm going to be short. And it was the one and only time in my life that through that text, reading Malachi, the third chapter, those words jumped off the page at me where God says, prove me. Prove me. It's rightly said that this is the only time in the Bible where God says, test me, prove me. Here with regard to finances. And I knew he was challenging me, write out that check by faith and watch what I will do. Prove me, says the Lord. Test me. I'll get back to the story in a moment. But I remember in 1983, knowing that the Lord was about to call me out of my secular job and call me to be full-time in preaching and teaching. I, I sensed that transition was at hand. Uh, someone had brought a message at our little congregation I was part of, in a midweek service. Somehow it stirred the pastor's heart. Actually, it had to do with giving. I remember the pastor stood up, he took his Bible, and he leaned it over the pulpit like this, and says, sometimes I feel like God is saying, I dare you to believe me. I dare you to believe me. And right then, boom, clear as a bell, I heard in my spirit, go out on the street and find someone and share the gospel with them. So I don't know, nine something at night, I went outside, looking, maybe there's a gas station, people coming in or out, just trying to find somebody, just to tell them about the Lord, just to obey. It was so real to me. And, and I went out on the street, and suddenly I noticed here's a restaurant here, and, and I was on the other side of the door, and, and I saw some people coming in. I kind of popped out from behind the door, which probably surprised them with my size and it being nighttime already. <laughs> and I just said, hey, I, if you want to find out about how to receive eternal life or how to know the Lord, just that building down there, visit with us, and so on. And the guy kind of looked at me like I was loony, put his arm around his wife, and went to the restaurant. But I just sensed, I, I just obeyed, done what I was supposed to do. And I sat down in the chair in the back of the building. And within moments, I heard the Lord clearly telling me, leave your job, quit your job, and go teach at this Bible school on Long Island, which in the Messianic movement we affectionately knew as Mashiach Lagoyim. It was called Christ for the Nations. They had a branch on Long Island at that time. Quit your job and go teach there. I, I got home that night. I said, honey, God told me to quit my job and go teach there. I called my mom. I said, mom, I'm going to be leaving my job. I'm going to be moving out there to teach. It was like 50 miles away from where we lived. Called my boss and, and said, it'll be sometime in the fall. This was in the summer. I said, it'll be sometime in the fall. I'll be leaving to go teach at this school. I'd never met with anyone there. I'd never talked to the director. Not, but I knew that I knew God spoke it, and the rest is history. But it was that challenge that night. I dare you to believe. We're not talking about, again, our own imaginations 
or us putting ourselves under pressure to create faith. You, you can't put yourself under pressure and make yourself believe. I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm a believer. You can't do that. It comes out of relationship with God. It comes out of his word getting in your heart and your mind and you meditate on it and, 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 and chew on it and take it in until it becomes real. But it also comes by acting on it. We have every year at our base called FIRE in Charlotte where we have a, a congregation, a ministry school, and a missions organization that's, that helps oversee and support our missionaries around the world. We have an annual missions conference. And in the missions conference, we bring in our different missionaries from around the world. We've got about 180 serving in 25 or so nations. Our biggest team, if you include the children, is in the Philippines with about 60 people. We've got folks in communist China. We've got folks in India. We've got folks in all kinds of exotic and difficult settings. And, and we all throw ourselves in and, and pledge to give and get behind them. And then our missionaries have to itinerate, raise funds and things. We had a speaker that I had heard many, many years ago. When I heard him like 25 years earlier, I thought he was old then. Here he was going strong, probably pushing 80. Wayne Myers, his life message is live to give. Lifetime missionary in Mexico. And I remember when he would speak at Mashiach Lagoim, speak for us back there, that I would always do my best to go to the meetings with no money in my pocket without my checkbook because I knew one way or another as he started speaking, I'd want to give every dime I had and then one way or another I'd end up doing it. And God would always amazingly come through. It's just God making himself real and saying, I'm here, I'm with you. So now it's all these years later and Wayne Myers is speaking at one of our missions conferences. And, and the way we do it in the conference, it's kind of a fun way. It's a little different for some. But let's say Chaim and his family are, are, are going to be returning to Israel and, and they need $1,000 more a month for their support. Maybe our missions director will say, okay, we need 20 people that will pledge 50 a month for at least a year. And we just raise hands and do it. And it's kind of exciting because it just comes and money comes from nowhere sometimes, out of nowhere. So as we're going on with things, they're asking pledge for this. And pledge, who, who'll step out and do this? And I, I feel prompted by the Lord. I'm supposed to give $5,000, which is 5000 more than what I had. I'm supposed to give $5,000 for one of our missionaries who at that time was in Jordan, working with the poorest of the poor in Muslim communities to, to get a plow for them so that they would be able to better till their land. And it was $5,000. And I, I, I felt the prompting to do it. And then someone else needs another 5000 And here's Wayne Myers, our guest speaker. He says, I'll, I'll take that 5000 And I'll, take, I'll cover this, I'll cover this. He's a missionary. He's an old guy now. He's been a missionary for years. He's not personally wealthy. I don't even know if he has a salary. And he's, I'll do this, I'll cover this, I'll cover this. Now, our, he's the guest. We want to bless him. Before he left, we're all making one-year pledges. We're trusting God within the year that we'll have the money to do this or do this every month, whatever. Before he leaves at the airport, the guy that's dropping him off, he says, you know, let me just take care of this while I'm here. And writes out a check for over $12,000 to our missionaries. He's, he's preached it and he's living it. He, he's found out how to get out of himself and walk on the water. He's found a way to trust God to do the impossible with finances. And, and, and when the goal is, 
I want to be a blessing to others. When the goal is not, in the American version, the carnal prosperity message, what's in it for me? How can I get more for myself? How can I satisfy my carnal lusts through God's principles? No, that's completely contrary to the word. Jacob, the fourth chapter, he says you, you, you don't have because you, you don't ask. He says when you ask, you ask to consume things on your own lusts. No, but when your desire is, Lord, I want to be a channel of blessing. You know my needs. You know my family's needs. As I honor you, I'm asking you to meet these needs and help me be a blessing to others. Don't you think God wants to work through us to help poor and hurting people? Don't you think God wants to work through us to pour into ministry work around the world? I see all the money these politicians are getting. And I I know the political battle is important. I know who we elect is important. But it just becomes this endless battle now. If you've got a million and I'm running against you, I need a million five. Well, then if you see I've got a million five, you need two million. And ends up being massive amounts of money put in. I'm thinking if we could just put that into the, the work of, of Yeshua's name and getting his name out and reaching our Jewish people and reaching people around the world and touching this nation and the nations, think of what good it would do. Prove me. Test me. I dare you to believe it. Think of healings in the New Testament. Stretch out your hand, the person with the withered hand. Why isn't the hand healed first? Why this word, stretch out your hand? This is the person responding in faith. See, we have made, maybe we've seen flaky things, or we've seen someone try to get out of the wheelchair, and they, they fall down. Or we know someone that, that smashed their glasses, and now they need you to drive them home because they can't see. But there's a real call that brings a real response in faith. Acts 14, in Lystra, Paul sees a man crippled, perceiving he has faith to be healed. He says, stand up on your feet. I can't stand. I'm going to stand up. As you stand up, you're healed. So back to Malachi 3 in my own life. I feel the Lord challenge me. Prove me. Test me and watch what I'll do. And it so happens that Monday, this was the weekend, that Monday I had to travel further out for my sales job than I had ever been. Way out east on Long Island, it was a 70-mile drive in each direction. I had never gone out that far. I didn't know what to expect in terms of how people would respond I didn't have a particularly good feeling that that they would really be buying a lot of baby pictures for whatever reason. I just had kind of this foreboding thing over me, and man, it's an extra long commute. Got to leave extra early in the morning. So I, I write the check. I honor the Lord. I do it by faith. I know he's challenging me. Test me. Test me. I dare you to believe it. And we'd have a presentation we'd go through, and we'd start out with, you know, I'd come back with the pictures, and we've got the pictures of your baby that have been taken. But here we've got this wonderful plaque. It's this amazing presentation, and you get this, and a plaque for, for, the, for the grandparents and, and others in the family, and this is a several-hundred-dollar package. And you start it there basically so that if someone spent $30, $40, it would be not so bad to them plaques for everybody, and then you can take the pictures out and then put new pictures in so you can keep using this. And 
And maybe, you know, the goal was to see 10 customers in a day. That was the goal. And then if you were doing really well, maybe you'd get $30, $40 per customer that they would actually buy. And then you got a percentage of that. And at the end of the week, in those days, this time, late 70s, you could just get by. Well, I only see seven people that day. Because every person I see is going crazy wanting to buy baby pictures. I, I remember calling Nancy, going to a payphone. Remember payphones? Going to a payphone and saying, this is unbelievable. I can't believe what's happening. At the end of the day, this selling baby pictures. Not diamonds, jewels, used cars, high ticket items. Baby pictures. At the end of the day, I saw seven people, and they bought $1,160 of baby pictures. It was, it was a company record for the day. We're all staggered. As the week goes on, the roll continues. And there was a couple I kept trying to see. The wife said, got to come to my husband's home, but he's only home this time and this time. And I said, yeah, but I don't work in the evening, and we can't work the thing out. The end of the week, last customer she said, hey, listen, uh, my husband's here. Why don't you come over now? Great. So I'm on my way back home. I stop there in this apartment building. I go in, I, and before taking out the pictures, I said, yeah, we have this special offer. Uh, we've got the plaque, you know, it goes on your wall. You sit it here, and you've got the big picture in the middle, and we pick different side pictures here, and then a smaller one, you know, for, for each of the grandparents, and this and that, you know, and it's three ninety nine ninety five, which is just a joke. I mean, it was a joke in terms of no one's ever going to buy that. I was just told that that's the way to start because they're not, they're not planning to spend any money when you go there. They're just expecting a free picture. So again, if they spend $30, $40 when you're done, you've done well. I show it to them. They say, okay, we'll take it. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely stunned. I'm just absolutely floored. We'll take it. Well, I knew that I had the ability to discount it and I had an ethic about trying to give people a good deal. So I said, okay, listen, why don't we get some extra things for other members of the family? In other words, rather than lowering the price, let's just get you more pictures and, and find out. You've got relatives here, relatives here. How, can we give you more? They go, no, this is fine. This is all we need. <laughs> you're serious. <laughs> and, and you see, no one had come in over $3,000 in baby picture sales in a week, and, and I was a few hundred dollars short. And with this final three ninety nine ninety five sale... I ended up over $3,000 for the week with 40-something people. Set a company record. I, I, you know, they had companies, branches in different parts of the country. And I, I, the whole week, I was on this supernatural roll. Never happened after that. Never happened on that level. God was making a point to me. Trust me. Prove, prove me. Baby pictures. Come on. And I remember I, I, I got out of their door uh, got out in the hallway, closed the, the, closed the door behind me. Right there in the hallway in the apartment building, I got down on my knees and I raised my hands and I worshiped God. I thought if they come out, they're going to think, well, how carnal is this guy? He makes a sale. It wasn't because of that. It was because of God. I was stunned. I came into the office the next day. They said, did you hit 3,000? I said, yeah, everyone was shocked. Prove me. I mentioned this on the radio this week. But there's a friend of mine who pastors a church called Gateway in Grapevine, 
right outside of Dallas, Texas. It's in a wealthy area. He was a Baptist evangelist, had a powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit years ago, started a church congregation with a handful of people in his home, and it grew after a year to like 200 people. Then after another year, it grew to 600, and then suddenly it took off. They're maybe 10 or 11 years old, but they have well over 15,000 members. When they did a special outreach for one of the Christian holidays last year, they had over 30,000 people attending the meetings, if I'm correct. In their fourth year of existence, they built a $14 million facility and then told their people in the midst of it, stop giving, we have all the money we need. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Robert wrote a book called The Blessed Life about principles of generosity and principles of giving the first fruits and the difference between uh, carnality and pride and a false humility and generosity. And a friend that worked in the congregation there, now uh, living and ministering in Israel, he gave me the book. He said they've got a great heart for Israel. They really love Israel. They support Israel, Jewish ministry. And he gave me the book to read. When I read the opening chapter, I thought, nah, this, this is, sounds just like tall tales, except I knew people who knew him, and I knew the story of the congregation. And I spoke there. I spoke there a number of times. First time I spoke there, five weekend services in their old building that just seated 600, and every meeting packed out at over 3,000, and then watched it grow over the years. So when I spoke the first time, I thought, okay, I wonder if I'm going to be uncomfortable with the way they receive the offering. I wonder how much hype there is, and if you give, this will happen and that. And I'm, I'm a little concerned, but I know they're good people. So I'm in there for the first of five services, two Saturday night, three Sunday morning. I'm in there for the first of five services. And uh, it's time for me to speak. I'm thinking, what, when did they take the offering? Something's funny here. Do they, I don't know, do it like once a month, can't be once a month? Or when did they do Did I miss it? No, I thought, no, I've been here right from the beginning. So when did they, when did we receive the offering? I mean, money's a big thing to them. They're, they're in a wealthy area. They've built this beautiful building. They've got plans to expand and do this and that. The service ends. Still no offering. I'm baffled. And the pastor, one of the pastors who was leading the, the meeting, says, if you're uh, visiting today, uh, the way we give, we have boxes in the back. God bless you. That was it. Now, you'll see that sometimes in Messianic congregations, but in big Gentile churches, you don't see that a lot. That was, the, that was the extent of the announcement. If you're visiting the way we give their boxes in the back, God bless you. In their history, they have not yet passed a plate to receive an offering. And we do that every week in our congregation. It's fine to do that. One of my colleagues who does these mass meetings in Africa and has preached probably to more people face-to-face than any human being in history, he was there years ago when they were much smaller and they received an offering for him on a Sunday morning. They encouraged people, in addition to their tithes, to give to him. And the offering for him, and this was years ago when they were much smaller, was a quarter of a million dollars. A few years back when I was talking to one of their elders, 
their average weekly tithes had surpassed a million dollars a week, and that's when they were smaller. If you read Robert Morris's book, he has an afterword in the book where he explains that he believes the reason they have been so supernaturally blessed with finances is because the first fruits of all funds they get is put aside for missions, but the first fruits of the first fruits goes to Israel to help Jewish ministry. Not to go into an Orthodox Jewish yeshiva, not to just go into a secular rebuilding program, but to help Jewish ministry, especially in Israel, around the world. And he believes that the reason they have been supernaturally blessed is because the first fruits of all income they get, they give to support Israel and Jewish ministry. And that's a testimony that's going out across the nation. And you, it is a living miracle. When I saw Robert Morris about a year and a half ago, he told me that because of their success and growth, all these church growth experts come in to meet with them and talk to them and find out what's going on. And he said that, that they had found, they went through their giving numbers, and they looked, said, there's an error in your book, something's wrong here. Because such and such church has the highest per capita of giving of any megachurch in America. We've surveyed all of them, and, and this particular church has the highest uh, per capita giving of every mega church in America, meaning congregations with at least 2,000 people in weekly attendance. They said, there's obviously an error in your books because your congregation more than doubles that per capita. <laughs> so we've looked at everybody. We know them, and yours is, uh, is a different stratosphere. There's an obviously an error in the books. He said, no, no, we give to Israel. We put Jewish ministry first. It's supernatural. It's God. I... I want to encourage you when it comes to giving as, as a, a mentality in your life rather than always looking at yourself as the needy one who doesn't have enough. When you go out for a meal, you expect to be treated. When, when, when there's a need, you expect to be the one receiving. To begin to say, I, I want to be a giver. I want to be a channel of blessing. I, I want to live a life of faith so that rather than constantly being under pressure for myself, I want to be believing God to help and bless others. Oh, in this world, we're going to have trouble. John 16, 33, Yeshua says, in this world, you'll have tribulation. When we stepped into to national radio, in a given month, we were, it's more money required than I'll get in salary in a year. In the natural it's impossible. In fact, if most of you emptied your savings accounts, those of you who have savings accounts, and poured it all into this offering, we'd still have needs. But God called us to do it. And we've had people sow into us with gifts larger than we've ever seen this year because God's told us, get out of the boat and walk on the water. And the goal is, how can we serve others? How can we bless others? How can we meet the needs of others? Prove me, God says. Say, well, what happens if for a year I give the first fruits, I give my first 10%, I'm part of this congregation, I sow it here, I sow it into my home congregation. What happens if it doesn't work? Oh, oh, but you see, it does. God got your 10%. (laughs) The worst case scenario is that you invested more money more steadily into the work of God than you ever have before. 
and you'll have eternal treasure in heaven. So the worst case scenario is it still works. But as you do it by faith, as couples, oh, if we do that, we're sure. Well, let's trust the Lord together. Let's see what he'll do. Let's step out. Let's give above ourselves. Let's move out of our own realm of comfort. Let's unfasten the safety belt, not in foolishness, but in faith. Now, I want to be totally candid with you. If all I was preaching about was finances, it's really not my strongest area. On the radio, you almost never hear me talk about finances in terms of the economy in America or finances in general or stewardship principles or things like that. It's not one of my primary teaching areas. But when Chaim asked me if I could speak on a theme related to this, to me, this is all about faith. This is all about trusting God where it counts. When I was a new believer, I I heard this illustration. I'll be closing in a moment. There was a a man who was standing by Niagara Falls. There was a a rope that had been strung across the falls. We were talking about real trust. Just saying believe is one thing, but trust is another. And faith requires real trust. Stern's Jewish New Testament, a complete Jewish Bible, has trust instead of faith. So the man says to the people there as a crowd, how many of you believe I can walk across that tightrope, pushing this wheelbarrow, turn around and come back and make it safely? How many believe I can do it? A couple hands go up, everybody else, I don't know, it seems like suicide. Well, sure enough, he goes across one side, turns around, slowly comes back. The crowd's cheering. And he says, how many of you believe I can do it again? And now they're all raising their hand and waving it. He says, how many trust me? And they're waving their hand. He goes, then get in the wheelbarrow. (laughs) That's the word to us. Get in the wheelbarrow. Step out. Believe. Step out of your comfort zone. Step out of what what you're habituated to do. Obey the prompting of the Spirit, not human prompting, but the prompting of the Spirit, and watch what God will do. Watch what our Father will do as we honor Him, and then He can entrust more to us so that we can bless others and help others and sow unto others and help the name of Yeshua be exalted around the world and among the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What a privilege. I say this last thing. One TV evangelist made the comment, look, without money you can do nothing. And saintly old man of God, Leonard Ravenhill, whom I was really close with the last five years of his life, he heard that, and he said to me, Mike, I thought Jesus said without me, you could do nothing. Our trust is in him. And we recognize, though, that many things in this world require funds. There are all kinds of dreams and visions. I have things I want to do, ways to reach people better. I can't tell you how many things that burn in me to do. And the only thing holding us back is funds. And I know that the source is not people but God. And and one of my ministry colleagues has sown and walked by faith for years in Jewish ministry. And as he has just seen a tremendous increase in funds come recently in in his ministry, he's looking for places to sow them into. 
And it just so happened as we were having lunch, a conversation came up, and, and now he's, he's working with an Israeli, taking all of our Jewish-related ministry material, all of our Jewish TV shows that we did, and, and debates and other things, and taking everything that we have and translating it into Hebrew with captions, and they're about to do a major web outreach in, in Israel to start reaching Israelis, and what, money, money helped it happen. He walked by faith, funds came in, and now it's sown into the kingdom, and it results in people, men and women who were lost, who didn't know the Lord, coming into the kingdom, now being with him forever. So, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that we are your stewards here, and we are your co-workers. Lord, teach us to take the limitations off of our own thinking. Teach us, Lord, to, to move out of our own ability and to step into your supernatural grace and ability. Give us ears to hear your spirit and a heart of faith to act on it and respond, to say, here I am, send me, use me, even in terms of finances. And I pray for you, Shuat Sion, that every need would be met and beyond, that the things that you planted in the hearts of the leaders and the things they desire to do would be done with excellence and would be done with efficiency and would be done with a supernatural grace beyond what they've experienced. And for everyone here in the midst of often challenging economic times, teach us, Lord, to be good stewards. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to walk by faith. Here we are. Send us and use us. In Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Folks, this... See if I can. Uh, ah! <laughs> Let's take a moment. Um, if you were here last Shabbat, you may know that the reason I felt led to begin speaking about giving is not because we need money. Yes, we need money, but that's really not not the point. This is really about heart. Your heart to God's heart. And thank you, Michael. Um, we want to pause and take an offering. And uh, we write it to Michael Brown. Write to S. Dr. Brown. I'm sorry? Ask Dr. Brown. Okay. <coughs> Let's pray. Lord God, um, thank you that you know our hearts and our situations and our struggles. Lord, we want to grow in you. We desire, Lord, that your kingdom would expand in our hearts. And we desire, Lord God, to grow in serving you, being fruitful in your kingdom. We pray, Lord God, that um, you would speak to each of us, Lord, that what comes forth, Lord God, would be out of hearts that are stirred by your ruach and are responsive to you, Lord. Hallelujah. Be glorified, Lord, in what comes forth from our heart. Pray that you would use it in the expansion of your kingdom, Lord. In the name of Yeshua. Amen. <clears throat>